Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this first episode, we speak with Matt Pottinger, former Deputy National Security Advisor, David Fife, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, and Rich Fontaine, CEO of the Center for New American Security, on Navigating China's Backyard, a closer look at China in the Indo-Pacific. We hope you enjoy. First of all, thank you all for being here today. So um, I want to start talking a little bit about China's goals. Um, so, so Matt and David, you wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs in November of 2022, where you noted that Xi Jinping's explicit objective is to replace the modern state system with a new order featuring Beijing at its pinnacle. In the article, you pointed to statements and language used directly by Xi that highlight his true aims. So I'd like to start, can you share some of those nuances with us? What is it that she is saying, maybe in Mandarin, that we're not hearing here in English in the United States? And maybe we'll start with you, Matt. Thanks, Carrie. It's, uh, thanks for your leadership of the Vandenberg Coalition. It's great to be with you. It's great to see David uh, and Richard. Richard, I was just reading the very good piece that you wrote about uh, Senator John McCain's legacy. Um, which um, uh, we miss him, and and thanks for your leadership at CNAS uh, as well. So, Carrie, I think um, it you know as as we have you know David and I referenced the piece that we wrote for Foreign Affairs uh, last year as we've uh, looked uh, carefully uh, along with our co-author Matthew Johnson, um, who uh, uh, is at the Hoover Institution. As we've looked at the speeches that Xi Jinping has delivered and the guidance that he's delivered to the party when he is speaking internally in his own language uh, to fellow party members, as opposed to an external audience, you know, for example, at Davos, uh, we find that uh, he reveals quite a lot about uh, his worldview. He reveals a lot about his ambitions and um if you if you go back to his earliest speeches as leader when he came on uh, to to the scene, or already eleven years ago now when he first uh, was elevated uh, in late 2012, he gave speeches um, that demonstrated that his foremost obsession is avoiding the same fate uh, as the Soviet Union, uh, but not by reforming, not by becoming more liberal, uh, but by becoming uh, more Leninist and even more Stalinist. He even spoke in that first speech that uh, excerpts of which were leaked. Um, he said to deny the, uh, the the record of Lenin and Stalin is to engage in historical nihilism, and it clouds and obscures and um, uh, uh, distracts our thoughts as committed Marxist Um He gave another speech soon after that that uh, David and I uh, like to refer to as uh, Xi Jinping's inaugural address, but it was not a public speech. It was a speech that he delivered to the Central Committee of the Communist Party, 
uh, and that speech was kept secret for six years. In it, he talked about uh, how uh, party members ha have have uh, made the mistake of losing faith in Marxism, Leninism, and he said that Marx and Engels were right. Uh, capitalist society is the one that's beset uh, by contradictions. Capitalism uh, is is the system that will inevitably perish from the earth, and socialism is practiced by the uh, totalitarian dictatorship. And the Chinese Communist Party would would eventually be the global model. Uh, so, the uh, again, this is Xi Jinping in his own words. Um, if you read things like Xi Jinping thought, which is now the state ideology, uh, he advances the notion of really Chinese political supremacy. He, he even attacks the centuries old concept of a world that's composed of sovereign nation states. Uh, he, he talks about how um, in his uh, ideology, Xi Jinping thought that, quote, all mankind needs a new order that surpasses and supplants the balance of power. A new world order is under construction that will surpass and supplant the Westphalian system. Uh, so, you know, the, the treaties of Westphalia from the early 1600s are what established the idea of the modern nation state enjoying basic rights and, and courtesies that states would extend to one another. Um, he's he's talked about the idea that uh, um uh, the the West's ideology is fundamentally incompatible uh, with China's uh, socialist system, and that Xi Jinping said, "quote This determines that our struggle and contest with Western countries is irreconcilable, so it will inevitably be long, complicated, and sometimes even very sharp." And I think by very sharp, he's referring to war, and he's given several speeches this year about the need for China to prepare for war. And indeed, he's ordered his military uh, to begin doing exactly that. David, what would a system with Beijing at the center really mean for Americans? Right, We often hear about the, the sort of rules-based liberal international order, but we often aren't talking about what the implications of the destruction of that order would mean for us here in America. So how do you view that challenge? Well, you know, again, um, Xi's words are a, are a useful and a bracing guide, and so are the actions that he takes domestically and then toward his neighbors and toward the world internationally. When Xi Jinping speaks most authoritatively to his internal party leadership at major moments like effectively his inauguration, as Matt mentioned, or in other major moments like the sixth plenum in November of 2021, when the Chinese Communist Party gathered just for the third time in a century to reissue their updated verdict on history, he speaks in terms that are fundamentally hostile and antagonistic to the democratic world and to the United States. And he betrays not only some of what Matt mentioned in terms of the uh, intense martial commitment the desire to prepare his Communist Party leadership in his country for war and for the privations of war. In that November 2021 speech, for example, he spoke of models of modern Chinese political leadership that were very few. One was Deng Xiaoping in 1989, being willing to perpetrate the Tiananmen Massacre 
and then withstand what Xi Jinping called the so-called sanctions of the West. And the other model was Mao around the Korean War. And Xi Jinping specifically quoted Mao's willingness to embrace preemptive war, to throw one punch in order to avoid hundred, and also Mao's willingness to, as she quoted him, to be willing to ruin the country internally in order to build it anew. So an intense dedication to ideological and political goals, to a willingness to wage war and a willingness to suffer domestically in order to pursue these political and ideological goals. What we also see in Xi Jinping's domestic policy and increasingly in his international uh, statecraft and foreign policy is the totalizing and even increasingly totalitarian quality of the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions. This is not a live and let live approach. It's an approach that has been from its first days fundamentally existential in its own sense of its competition with the democratic capitalist world or with the rules-based order or with whichever uh, kind of uh, labels and euphemisms we might want to use. It's not a vision that uh, welcomes, um, you know, competing, uh, competing interests or coexistence. It can be patient in its strategy. Xi Jinping talks about needing to approach the rest of the world with both cooperation and struggle. So it's not an approach that takes uh, a constant and simple um, approach of, say, struggle, what they call struggle and subversion toward foreign countries and foreign companies. Occasionally, there is a, a spirit and a need for the Chinese Communist Party to undertake cooperation. And we've seen that in their very successful exploitation of trade and technology links with the United States and with others across the democratic capitalist world. But the vision ultimately is of capitalism's demise. It's of the victory of the socialist world led by Beijing. And it would then apply the sort of uh, desire to totally control, to set the terms of politics, set the terms of trade, to set the terms of discourse, not only in China and not only in Asia, but around the world. And we've seen that in certain just sort of micro illustrations when the Chinese Communist Party asserts itself against targets in Hollywood or the NBA, when a general manager of a basketball team, you know, tweets in favor of Hong Kong democracy protesters. Uh, the desire ultimately is to be able to set terms that would be favorable to Beijing, intensely unfavorable to democracies, to those who would disagree with Beijing on any strategic matter, including trade and how we govern ourselves and how we speak out, uh, let alone to those who would seek to criticize Beijing or to uh, you know, hold or practice, say, minority faiths in the way that Xi Jinping has been increasingly repressive of those at home who would, uh, in his view, challenge in any way the monopoly on power of the Chinese Communist Party. And so the vision of a Chinese-centered world is, you know, unfortunately a, uh, a very dark one that Beijing has made already more progress in beginning to assert than, uh, than any of us uh, who appreciate uh, liberal democratic freedoms would wish. 
Richard, one of the good things uh, about this dialogue that's happening about China is that most of the presidential candidates from um, current President Biden to the Republican candidates, you know, Nikki Haley, um, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump, they've all spoken about China um, and in some respects uh, quite frequently. So what do you see as the sort of um, candidate field getting right about China and what are maybe some of the things that you think that they're getting wrong? I think generally speaking, there's been a wake-up call uh, that happened probably for most people in Washington and the political class during the Trump administration, although there were plenty of people way out ahead of this, where China went uh, from being seen as a potentially liberal or at least moderate international power in the future based on deep engagement and trade and the flow of information and everything to uh, an inevitable and indefinite competitor. And you find very, very few people today, presidential candidates or otherwise, trying to articulate what was, even a few years ago, more or less some conventional wisdom when it came to China. And I think Xi Jinping has a lot to do with that. I think the Trump administration's re recasting of that has something to do with it and so forth. Um, and so I think the diagnosis of the challenge that China poses uh, is generally right. And I mean, to what Matt, to what David said about, you know, why should the average American care? I mean, you know, they don't go to bed at night thinking about the liberal international order. But, you know, you think about some of the basic components of American national life, freedom of speech. Well, it doesn't exist even in other countries if freedom of speech means that you're entitled to criticize the government of China or the Chinese Communist Party or your treatment of, of even their own people. Um, you know, American citizens uh, who happen to be of Chinese origin have been subject to... Um, you know, attempts at, at intimidation at the least and, and more force of things at the most, uh, you know, the, 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 if, if we have uh, technical standards and technologies that sort of eviscerate our own uh, ability to have the right to privacy in favor of the Chinese Communist Party being able to track uh, what it is we're doing, who we're talking to, and all this other kind of thing. I mean, these, these, these sort of things are, 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 are more than blips, but they're not the totality of what might be possible if China was in a more dominant position. But those are the kind of things you want to resist because that is the kind of thing that's at the core of American democratic life. And then, of course, the core of American international life is also choosing your own alliances, being able to stand up for the countries that you think are worth standing up for and so forth. And that, too, is opposed to China. So I think, generally speaking, uh, most of the presidential candidates are not too far apart. Um, and I don't think President Biden probably is too far apart um, from where they would be on the diagnosis. I, th I think the prescriptions tend to vary quite a bit. And I think, you know, even kind of the, the most maximalist prescriptions tend to be lacking. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, I think the idea that we've gotten competition and we had to sort of have to have that framework in our head, I think that's sort of gotten through. Um, the idea that we have to have, you know, a robust defense budget and probably more uh, defense spending, um, that has gotten through when it actually materializes is when it gets tough. But I think conceptually, people uh, generally uh, agree with that. Um, but then you say, well, what about our economic agenda? Well, we have a pretty decent approach toward a defensive economic agenda now, protect our semiconductors, protect you know intellectual property, export controls. We have basically no offensive economic agenda. We're not trying to expand trade with non-Chinese countries anywhere. I mean, if anything, we're going backwards with you know trying to become more protectionist. Uh, you know, where is our 
strategic immigration policy that would say, hey, look, in order to compete effectively with China, a lot of that's going to be economic and technology. That means we've got to get the best people from around the world in the United States contributing to an innovative economy. And if that means raising the H-1B cap so that we can have more people do it here as opposed to going somewhere else or going back to China or something, you know, that that's, you know, a third rail right now. So um, when it comes to the, pers- the, the prescriptions for what to do about it, I think we're kind of only halfway there. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, semiconductors and um, Matt, I'm curious, you know, a lot of government leaders and policymakers have really focused on this idea of um, semiconductors being a critical piece of why um, we have interest in, in defending Taiwan. Um, what do you think, do you, when we talk about defending Taiwan, what are the what are the reasons that you give as to why that's important? Is it really just because they you know, produce our, the majority of our supply of semiconductors. What are the other sort of economic and security reasons that Taiwan is so important to the United States? Yeah, I mean, first, if you look at Beijing's grander ambitions, uh, what, what it wants to achieve globally, it views uh, hegemony over the Indo-Pacific region, particularly Southeast Asia and East Asia, into the Pacific, down into Australasia, as a prerequisite for achieving uh, it, its broader uh, global hegemony that it seeks. It's fairly clear from Xi Jinping thought that they wouldn't call it global hegemony, but it's very clear that that's what they're describing. It's a sinocentric hierarchy um, that to uh, uh, over nation states, and then the obliteration of nation states, and just um, uh, so so the. The prerequisite for dominating the Indo-Pacific, uh, for dominating the world, is dominating the Indo-Pacific. The prerequisite for dominating the Indo-Pacific is dominating Taiwan, and uh, and and so Beijing uh, rightly views Taiwan both you know geographically as well as technologically as this sort of linchpin, uh, and uh, so for for us. If Beijing were to use coercive means like a blockade uh, to subjugate Taiwan or an all-out invasion to subjugate Taiwan, uh, that would uh, mean we're living in a, in a very different world the next morning when we wake up from that. First, uh, Beijing will have um, uh, destroyed what's called the first island chain. Uh, that is uh, the, the entire defensive concept for um, Japan, for the Philippines, and on down to uh, Pacific Island nations in Australia and New Zealand, um, depend on uh, the ability to threaten uh, Chinese military movements into the Pacific. If Taiwan is subjugated through force, it, it means that Beijing is, in essence, broken through that chain, is able to uh, in their own words, uh, fly and uh, and sail in ways that could threaten a blockade over Japan and also threaten to cut off um, Australia and uh, and Southeast Asian countries from their ally, the United States. Um, it it also would would send a real shockwave to the idea of America's ability to to credibly protect um, our treaty allies. You know, our treaty allies. Uh, protect us as much as we protect them. Um, you know, if if they have lost faith that we have the means or will to protect uh, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, 
Australia, even Thailand, which is a treaty ally of the United States. Um, it, it's really the beginning of the end of American power in the most populous and, and uh, part of the world. Um, uh, and then, of course, there, there are th those things that you're talking about, Kerry, having to do with semiconductor manufacturing. Most of the world's advanced semiconductors are made in Taiwan. Um, uh, if, if that were disrupted through war, and if there's a war, believe me, it will be disrupted. Even a blockade would severely disrupt that. Uh, that would have catastrophic knock-on effects for the U.S. economy um, in ways that everyone will feel. <laughs> you know, to, to Richard's point, people will go to go to bed thinking about these issues, but they'll wake up to a nightmare um, if, in fact, Taiwan uh, has been disrupted in this in this significant way. Forget about iPhones; you're not going to get uh, a future generation of smartphone. We're going to be living on older technology. In fact, going backwards in time, it'll be a reversal of Moore's law uh, if Taiwan uh, collapses. So those are those are just a few um, uh, of, of of the key points. I, I would add also that uh, while we're really looking at vital national interests more than uh, the defending of abstract values, I will say that if Taiwan, which which by the way rates higher than the United States as a successful democracy in in a lot of uh, independent uh, reviews. Uh, you, you know, various groups that study it, like Freedom House and so forth, tend to rate Taiwan as, as uh, right up there with the most robust democracies in the world. Uh, that will have a huge impact on the future trajectory of China. There's still, I think, hundreds of millions of Chinese people in China, as well as diaspora outside of China, that are hoping that China, after Xi Jinping, will turn towards uh, a more liberal model. Taiwan is really is really the guide for them. Taiwan is an ethnic Chinese society that has managed to create a stable, highly prosperous, free speech, freedom of, of religion, um, uh, liberal and, and uh, free market democracy. So it, it is the guidepost. It, it is the, the search, you know, that, that lighthouse for uh, a future for a more stable and more prosperous and, and uh, uh, more um, uh, really constructive of uh, uh, China of the future. Is there anything that either of you want to add about t Taiwan's defense in particular? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll note, I guess, a bit of a, a combination of some of what we've addressed in the last two uh, questions, which is some of the ways that the Taiwan issue um, is and isn't emerging in our kind of unfolding presidential contest. It is interesting, certainly, to see um, how the presidential contest demonstrates the sort of enormous shifts that Richard outlined in, you know, broad bipartisan U.S. thinking on China in the last several years, and the degree to which uh, you you have a broadly felt uh, diagnosis of, a, of an enormous problem uh, with the Chinese Communist Party and uh, a really a uh, rather terrible, you know, failure of what had been bipartisan policy toward China that was much more uh, optimistic and hopeful and engagement focused with visions of, uh, you know, changing uh, China into a friend and into a so-called responsible stakeholder in the U.S.-led liberal international order. You know, these former ambitions have been, you know, shattered by the empirics of Beijing's own choices and conduct and really buried to a fairly significant degree across American politics. 
And yet, I would certainly associate myself with you know, Richard's observation that on prescription, given that diagnosis, there's still an enormous amount of uncertainty and uh, and disagreement and um, and in a lot of ways major issues that are not getting aired much in our politics, including in the early presidential election. Um, I think on this, I might disagree just a bit with the illustration of the discussion of defense spending, because actually I think that, you know, in the early innings here of the presidential uh, election, we've had a lot of discussion on China. That discussion is almost uniformly uh, hawkish and suspicious. And yet there's a lot more comfort from candidates speaking about issues other than hard power and the risk of Taiwan war. There's a lot of very justified and understandable discussion of China's unfair trade practices, China's role in the export of fentanyl precursors that come through Mexico and are having devastating effects in the United States. Things like China's, uh, the purchases of land in the United States that are tied to Beijing, um, various of these, you know, very important uh, economic trade and other issues. And they are important, and it is a sign of maturity in our kind of strategic and political discussion that they're being discussed at the center of the presidential campaign. And yet, it would appear that our largest risk is that not only, as Richard said, did we kind of wake up in the Trump years to the idea that we have a fundamental challenge with the Chinese Communist Party that ought to be at the center of our foreign policy and national security. But in the Biden years, especially since the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in spring of 2021 gave public testimony about Xi Jinping instructing his military to be prepared for an assault on Taiwan by 2027, what that means is that in the Biden years, we have been shaken by the shock, frankly, that not only do we have a China problem, but that that China problem might materialize in a war over Taiwan that we could lose very soon, by 2027 or sooner, or just in this decade generally. That is a terrible thing to have to recognize. And it calls on us to have a discussion, including especially at the presidential campaign level, of what our, our interests in Taiwan, as we've discussed, but also what ought to be our declaratory policy toward the defense of Taiwan? Uh, President Biden has repeatedly said that he would commit U.S. forces to the defense of Taiwan against China. It was interesting that subject did not come up in the first Republican presidential debate last week. In terms of defense spending, I believe there's only one Republican candidate who has offered a suggested floor for U.S. defense spending as a share of U.S. GDP. And it's Mike Pence who suggested that that floor be 3.5% of GDP. 3.5% of GDP is a little more than we're currently spending. We're currently spending about 3.1% of GDP. 3.5% is also roughly what we've been spending for the last several years. It's not a number that reflects the fact that the world has gotten so much more dangerous in the last few years because of China's growth and hostility. And 3.5% is something like half of the Cold War average of our spending, let alone the Cold War highs. And that issue is barely being talked about in our presidential election campaign. Um, 
if we compare it, for example, to 1980 and Reagan, who not only, you know, brought an entirely different approach to uh, the way he wanted the American public to understand the Soviet threat at that time, but he talked, you know, very compellingly in strategic terms and even in messaging terms of a 600-ship Navy. That sort of clear and, frankly, bracing way of talking about the fact that defending against China's ambitions and aggression will be costly in hard power terms is so far not really present in our presidential election race. Um, and I think that our strategy and our politics will be better off the sooner these things start to be discussed in more detail by our candidates. So in addition to um, to defense spending, I'm, I'm curious to sort of hear about some of our allies and, and partners in the region and how that could potentially serve as a, a bulwark against Chinese aggression. So um, in, in recent years, we've seen the Biden administration focused on building up these sort of regional coalitions um, with the Indo-Pacific. So we have the Quad, which is the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia. Um, we have the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, um, which is a U.S.-led economic initiative um, that includes 14 members from the Indo-Pacific. We have AUKUS, of course, the, the trilateral agreement um, between Australia, the U.K., and the U.S. So um, maybe I'll start, Rich, with you. How do you view these sort of regional and multilateral coalitions as serving as a counterweight to um, uh, sort of Chinese growth uh, in the in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to observe is that most of those would not have been possible even by the best American diplomats in the world just a few years ago. And again, I think you have to send Xi Jinping a fruit basket uh, for some of the opportunity on the diplomatic and, and sort of cooperation front that has uh, materialized. You know, when you're talking about a number of these countries leaving aside, maybe Australia, we're talking about India and Japan, Southeast Asia. What you have there is countries that, if they had their druthers, would prefer to be fairly demilitarized and fairly non-aligned. But they're not. They're going in the opposite direction. Why is that? Because they discern a threat to their security. And and that, in turn, has created uh, opportunities for the United States to be able to knit together some of these countries uh, in new and interesting ways. The Quad itself is not new, but the way that it has been sort of revived, first during the Trump administration and now during the Biden administration, sort of elevated in terms of levels and ambition uh, is good. Um, AUKUS is uh, a potentially great uh, platform for the sharing of defense technology. Um, I say potentially because there's a bunch of arcane kind of bureaucratic potential impediments to that that are almost all on the American side, but that would bore the listeners if we went down the ITAR path or something like that. But nevertheless, those are real. Um, but if that works, they become a great uh, example of how close allies can share defense technology uh, in a way that ultimately makes a lot of sense. Um, you look around other things, I mean, Japan doubling its defense budget over five years. I mean, if they meet that commitment, they'll have the third biggest defense budget in the world. It's been a long time uh, since Japan had that kind of uh, military capability. The Philippines, uh, which, you know, even very recently under Duterte was kind of hot and cold, to put it mildly, about uh, U.S. Uh, participation in in their own sort of security policy. And now they're literally welcoming arms. We're seeing the biggest military joint exercises that we've seen since 1991 there. And you can go on and on and on. The big missing piece here is on the economic side. And so, yes, there is IPEF, um, but IPEF is defined more by what it's not than what it is. Uh, there are some, you know, couldn't hurt uh, sort of pillars in terms of supply chains and things like that. Um, but it's not a substitute for... Uh, actual trade liberalization, an actual 
free trade agreement, uh, you know, China is now, there are two pan-Asian, uh, pan-Pacific trade agreements. One is RCEP, and China's a member of that. The other is CPTPP. China has applied to be a member of that. The United States is party to neither and is offering nothing uh, nothing as an alternative to it. And, and so that, you know, on the Republican and the Democratic side, I think is the big missing piece. And in Asia, where, you know, trade policy has a disproportionately sort of geopolitical uh, role to play. It's not like the Middle East, where you can sort of get along on on the security side, and that kind of does it. it. You have to have that economic piece. Um, that's the part where, uh, you know, hopefully IPEF can be, uh, you know, a stepping stone to something much more ambitious uh, here relatively soon. But it's our domestic politics that have been in the way of that. I want to ask a couple more questions about the sort of um, regional cooperation as well as military preparedness, because I think it's a very good point that um, looking at our capabilities vis-a-vis -vis what China's growth has been um, in terms of military spending over the last few years has been um, a pretty pretty remarkable shortfall for the United States. Um, so one of the sort of narratives that we'll hear, and maybe I'll, I'll pitch this to you, Matt, is um, this uh, this idea that, well, America's budget for defense spending is more than the next 10 countries combined, right? And they'll point out that the public budget that China has put forward as its military spending is closer to 200 billion. Ours is past um, 860 billion. Um, of course, the intelligence community has assessed that the Chinese budget is a lot higher than that, probably closer to 700 billion. So how do you respond to those who may argue with what David mentioned about the need for us to increase our military spending, as well as those who might say, the more we talk about military preparedness, the more we're pushing China um, to sort of lead us into the very war that we're trying to avoid. Yeah. So, Kerry, I, the, you know, if if China's real military budget is, as you mentioned, um, somewhere in the vicinity of $700 billion a year, that's not that's not very far behind the United States. I mean, that's where we were at a handful of years ago. So um, we have never uh, faced a peer competitor, um, you know, in modern times that had um, an economy as, as big as China's relative to our own or military spending uh, as, as high as China's relative to our own. So uh, to, to David's point, you know, uh, for, for us even to double our defense spending is really uh, a modest thing to be doing in order to buy continued deterrence and to maintain peace through strength. I'll tell you when U.S. defense spending is really high, it's when we're at war. We want to avoid a situation. I think, I think the highest spending during the Cold War was probably the decade when we were at war in Vietnam, when we were looking at, you know, uh, twice what what David is uh, proposing here. So, in other words, four times what almost what we're spending right now. I, I think it is it is cheap. It is a cheap investment to increase defense spending in order to deter a catastrophic conflict. Is money very very well spent? It still pales in comparison to what we spend uh, on entitlements in this country. Uh, uh, so. Um, and, and 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 entitlements aren't going to be worth a whole lot if we don't have security and liberty at home. So um, uh, look, this idea that um, uh, if you look at if you look at China's defense spending, it, it's been on this constant upswing, irrespective of what's going on in the world, irrespective of 
whether the United States is is cutting our defense budget like we did during the Obama administration when we went to, into this uh, terrible uh, policy of so-called sequestration, where you know we just sort of held steady whatever budgets were applied to various silos, even if it was parts of our defense spending that, that were not actually helpful uh, to deterrence. Um, even at that time, China was uh, rocketing upwards. Um, even when we were bringing China into the WTO and things looked really optimistic for the future of U.S.-China relations, China is skyrocketing. So this is, this is not China reacting to us. This is about a long-term, uh, very clear and, and well-thought-out strategy that has regarded the United States as the primary adversary of China, uh, going all the way back to the the uh, so allegedly good old days of Deng Xiaoping. So uh, 1989, 1990, 1991, those were the years when China saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and came to deliberately regard the United States as their primary adversary, ideologically, militarily, geostrategically. Rush Doshi has written uh, very compellingly about this in his book, The Long Game, where he was looking at Chinese primary sources, something that our press rarely does, something that you know alleged scholars, alleged think tanks are, aren't looking in great depth at these t types of primary sources a lot of the time. Uh, so, I mean, if we look at that, we see that this is not China responding or reacting to things that we say or do. This is us belatedly responding to the reality that China has been pursuing for decades. Can I, can I just say one quick thing, and I, I, I'd love to hear uh, David's view on this as well, which is the political debate has been, you know, as David was describing, I think extremely skeptical of China and and worried about the rise of the continued rise of Chinese power. Just over the past, you know, weeks or month or two, there there's been this huge spate of articles and opinions that come out and say, well, we've actually reached peak China. They have many more problems than they have capabilities. And so, you know, if you look, their uh, their economic growth rates were once in the double digits. Now it's maybe 2.3% or something like that. It's got demographic problems because uh, they can't get over the legacy of the one-child problem. The population is shrinking. Youth unemployment is at 27%. They've got this big, uh, you know, real estate bubble and they're non-performing loans and all this other stuff. That may all be true, but it's not necessarily terribly relevant for the things that we care about the most, right? And so, um, you know, th the flip side of this is a few people are trying to make the argument, well, we've reached peace China, really it's a declining China, and you can determine whether that's more or less dangerous than a rising China, which is sort of a philosophical <laughs> debate almost, or where you can say, well, you know, now Xi Jinping is going to go from you know, nationalist, uh, uh, a security-minded Mao to economic-minded pragmatist Deng Xiaoping because of these constraints that he has. But look at the Western Pacific. The military balance continues to deteriorate away from the United States and its allies and toward China. Its military budget continues to go up. Its technology acquisition continues to increase. Uh, its capabilities you know, look at its diplomacy. Just, I mean, you, I don't think there's a huge amount to the expansion of the BRICS, but their diplomatic, which happened just a couple of days ago, but but their diplomatic ambitions for sure are 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 very uh, significant. And and so uh, the will to be, as we would see it, you know, highly disruptive to the world that we wish to live in, and the capabilities they have to bring to bear against that uh, are 
are enduring and they're going to be there for a long time. And so I just, I, I worry a little bit that this talk about, well, if you look at all the problems China has, it's not the juggernaut we thought. So, you know, maybe we let up on the accelerator where many of these policy changes that are in the process of be making now should have been, happened 10 years ago. Uh, if, but we didn't have the political will to do it and didn't see the situation that way. So I don't know if, if, well, true. if you agree with that. I do. I, I agree completely. I mean, I, I, I think I think a lot of the description of China's uh, system beginning to fail is, is accurate. Um, uh, fail for the people of China, not for the Communist Party itself that, that maintains a monopoly power there. But it is that model is failing for the Chinese people. And, and there's more and more chatter about that within China. People are openly contemptuous now of Xi Jinping uh, from from accounts that I'm hearing from uh, uh, people uh, in China. So all of that said, it, this could make the the, the CCP, uh, you know, it, it does not have a bearing on on the ambitions of the CCP. Uh, in fact, it's accelerating their efforts to, to gain even greater control uh, and to centralize more economic activity. Uh, and and they're not slowing down on their military spending in spite of all of this. So, I mean, you remember in the 1930s, uh, the governments of Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain in the UK were making a lot of similar arguments that look, you know, Germany is such a mess. They they're they're, they're dealing with it was it was almost you know this this sort of guilty uh, uh, or, or sympathetic view that that um, you know but the, the poor Germans you know they're 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 saddled with um, uh, really high inflation and all these things and and. Let's not let's not interfere with uh, with Hitler's uh, ability to acquire a greater military capability because the military the greater military capability will make him feel more secure and then and then we'll have less to worry about you know I mean one thing that that fascist systems and Marxist Leninist systems have in common is this is this paradox that the more self confident they are and the stronger they get the 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 more aggressive not the more not, not, not the more uh, complacent, uh, the more aggressive they become. And I think, I think we're at risk. We're already seeing that dynamic play out. And I think the remainder of this decade is going to be very, very dangerous uh, until finally, uh, hopefully, the Chinese people can uh, start to ask deeper questions about whether they've got the best system for, for their future. I would say, and I think what, what Richard and Matt just very compellingly kind of giving voice to is that you know, we Americans have a uh, have an unfortunate record of telling ourselves strategic lullabies with some real frequency. And the sort of challenges that we're seeing out of Chinese politics and the Chinese economy in recent years run the risk of encouraging that kind of, uh, of lullaby uh, telling or lullaby singing again in our strategy and in our politics. That isn't to say that the Chinese economy is not indeed stumbling, as we've seen this summer, for reasons that have something to do with current policy and, frankly, for reasons that have uh, everything to do with policy that goes back 15 years and more. Long-standing, difficult for the Chinese Communist Party to navigate out of. So a real thing, not a mirage that we're seeing. It's also the case that Xi Jinping's COVID policies over the last three and a half years, especially until he you know, very uh, rashly 
kind of lifted his zero COVID policy at, at the end of last year, those were very damaging policies for the well-being and the economy of the Chinese people. Those were real mistakes of governance out of Beijing that frankly do kind of remind us of some of the real mistakes of central authority in communist Soviet Union. And yet to draw the conclusion that these failures of recent governance and economic policymaking mean that China is fundamentally weak, that China is not a strong rival and competitor of ours, mean that the main thing we actually have to seek to do with China is stabilize their economy lest we suffer the secondary effects of a really weakened China, that would uh, run the risk of telling ourselves again some really damaging strategic lullabies of the kind that that we've mentioned. You know, Chinese policy out of the central authoritarian Chinese Communist Party outstripped our expectations for decades, roughly between the 80s and the 2010s. That should humble us. It was catastrophic the degree to which we told ourselves that Chinese political and economic collapse were always just around the corner. It wasn't the case. They were more politically resilient. They were more successful in their policymaking, harsh and brutal as it often is. They were more successful at climbing the technology ladder, at bringing innovation domestically despite not having property rights, at sending students abroad and winning them to come home, do innovation and entrepreneurship and value creation in China. All of these things were out of step with general American and Western assumptions. That ought to give us an enormous amount of pause and humble our more optimistic assessments of China's strategic direction, especially, frankly, when we see them stumbling, not because they might not be stumbling, but because there is real risk in over-interpreting these developments. Well, I think one of the, the things that makes me nervous is seeing how much China controls over things like critical mineral supply chains. Um, we were just talking about semiconductors, how much of American Americans are dependent on um, on China. And as Governor DeSantis recently noted, we need Chinese materials to create many of the things um, that we consider to be American products. And that actually includes a lot of defensive materials, including ammunition. So how, maybe Rich, I'll start with you. How can we sort of responsibly protect our supply chain that is now so integrated um, with China, as well as as de-risk or decouple, however you want to frame it, um, without compounding difficulties for American families that are already kind of suffering quite um, quite significantly with rampant inflation? Well, I think there's going to be some trade-offs that are inevitable. Um, you want to minimize the costs associated with de-risking, which I guess decoupling is not used in polite company. Um, anymore it's now de-risking and uh but but whatever whatever it is you want to de-risk and i think really step one is figuring that out um then there's going to be a cost i mean if you're interfering with the market what the market would otherwise determine there's going to be a cost associated with that but you can try to make a determination about whether the national security risk of letting it go unaddressed is worth the cost that we're going to pay as an economy in terms of higher prices or or whatever it is I mean, so to that degree, I think it starts with identifying. I mean, the, the one thing that people seem to um, agree with is they say, well, it's okay for us to buy T-shirts and sell soybeans, but it's not okay for us to sell semiconductors and 
I don't know, you know, rely on China for PPE. Okay, but between those two poles is a hell of a lot of stuff, right? And and we're only beginning to figure out where we want those boundaries to be. I think there's some things that are are relatively uh, intuitive. I mean, rare earths, but even there, you know, it's rare earths and, and you know, all of that. Uh, PPE, uh, semiconductors technology that would allow, uh, you know, for interference in privacy rights uh, by the Chinese. Um, you can sort of go down these things. I mean, the things that in a crisis we would not want to be dependent on China for is the starting point for figuring out where we would want to ver- diversify away, not just to bring home to the United States and try to manufacture down the street, but rather to have produced or or, or we rely on a non-China country. Um, so that w- within that is a lot of space to be able to do things and also to try to minimize the costs associated with that approach. But I think to imagine that there will be no cost associated with that is just not reasonable. There will be some. The question is whether it's justified given the reduction in national security risk we could achieve. Um Something I've always been curious about, and, and maybe Matt, you can shed some light on this, is, you know, when national security professionals discuss things like irregular warfare, they often talk about things like the weaponization of resources. And it strikes to me that China's control over things like our critical mineral supply chain, it, it certainly feels weaponized. And so my question is, from what you know about Xi Jinping and, and about China's growth in general, um, was this sort of intentional on their part? Or is this kind of like a happy accident that they walked into and now control 90 percent of the critical minerals um, uh globally. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, quite deliberate. If you look at strategies going back um, many, many years, but one of, one of the more prominent ones in recent years was what was called Made in China 2025. It explicitly states that China's goal is to achieve market dominance over uh, the key technologies of, of the 21st century. Uh, in some cases, they say quite specifically, you know, that they want to have 80 percent of uh, semiconductor manufacturing for legacy nodes, for example, uh, by by a date certain. Um, uh, so this is this is quite deliberate, and the purpose is not simply that they want to have a commercial advantage. Uh, it's about creating uh, strategic leverage, and Xi Jinping has spoken about this. He gave a speech in late. Uh, 2020 about this, it, which which then was uh, repackaged in the form of their uh, uh, their five year plan that was officially published in early 2021. In it, he talks explicitly about wanting to create uh, 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 what he calls countermeasures, strategic countermeasures through uh, deepening uh, the world's dependency on China for high-tech supply chains. So this so-called countermeasure is really uh, a, a, another way of saying he wants to acquire offensive leverage, you know, the ability to threaten uh, or exert that leverage just as they've done against Australia after they, they didn't like the fact that Australia was asking questions about where COVID originated. So China gave Australia a list of more than a dozen political demands. I mean, these were raise and outrageous demands having nothing to do with with um you know covid or 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 even really uh, economics it was it was more about you need to uh, support china's view that it has sovereignty over the south china sea 
Australia needs to repeal its laws designed to prevent China from exerting undue influence on uh, Australian elections. Uh, they literally gave this list of demands and then put in place economic coercive uh, measures, uh, basically uh, embargoing uh, uh, exports fr uh, from from Australia. Now, it's important to note that that ended up backfiring on China, but it won't in every case. It, in that case, Australia mostly exports, um, uh, you know, fungible commodities and things where they could find new marketplaces. But when you're talking about really critical technologies, choke point technologies, that's what China wants to control. It wants us to be dependent on them for that. And they know that when you can't just simply find, you know, five nanometer uh, uh, logic chips uh, just anywhere, right? They, they want to control those things so that we have no choice and we're put in the position of having to submit to Chinese political demands in order to uh, keep our economies alive. That is the very explicit uh, goal of that five-year plan and of Xi Jinping's speeches and of these big strategies like Made in China 2045. And you see in um, a lot of China's relationships with countries uh, around the world, and we'll see this through this series as well, um, this idea of um, China really using its economic leverage, its security leverage with those nations in order to um, gain some kind of political foothold um, within within those countries. Um, so, so, Rich, in a foreign affairs article you wrote earlier this year, you speak about what you call the myth of neutrality, um, suggesting that that um, uh, Blinken and other officials' claims that we're not asking countries to choose between the U.S. and China um, are not only falling on deaf ears, but it's actually not really a reflection of, of reality. So what do you propose the U.S. do when it comes to countries that feel caught in the middle of U.S.-China competition? Yeah, I wrote that after having traveled um, and I was in Southeast Asia right before I uh, wrote that, but you can travel in Asia, Middle East, even some parts of Europe, and you will hear almost this call and response that thing that's going on now where we don't want to be forced to choose between the United States and China. We want a mix of security and economic benefits from both of you. Don't force us into choices. And then the response from the administration for quite understandable reasons, I guess, is don't worry, we're, no one's going to force you to choose. You don't have to choose. That's not what's on the table. And of course, it's true that there's not block A and block B. There's not the integrated political economic block the way there was during the Cold War, more or less. Uh, the trades with itself and, you know, is is sort of in, and defends each other and so forth. And, and you've got one on the other side and they don't trade much with each other and they don't have much economic interaction. Then you have these guys in the middle. That, 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 that doesn't exist now. So we're not asking countries to give up their economic and diplomatic and military relationships and just join our block. So that is true. But it's also not a terribly interesting answer because what is really at issue is not some choice to take all in one, some strategic choice between the United States and China. It's every little choice that is going to happen on a regular basis now for a very long period of time. So you can look at, I mean, you know, China wanted countries to buy Huawei to build out their 5G network. The United States wanted countries to not buy and not allow five Huawei to five to use their five G network, and both were prepared to use some forms of leverage, even with friendly countries, in order to try to obtain that policy outcome. Uh, you know, China has a, a global basing strategy and would like to have some sort of facilities in multiple countries. The United States would like them not to have uh, facilities in multiple countries. They have to choose. You can sort of go down the line, and so my view is that 
okay, fine, yes, no overarching strategic choice. But instead of just over and over asserting that there's no choice to be had, let's make it as easy as possible for these countries to choose our position rather than the Chinese position. Well, how do you do that? Well, one, you have reasonable alternatives to what the Chinese have on offer. I mean, we saw this with 5G. Once there were some reasonable alternatives to Huawei and, and, and 5G, it started to get a little more traction. You know, another is to demonstrate that you're not asking countries to put a large swath of their economic relationship with China at, in peril in order to choose your your side on, on certain policy uh, matters. And the third, which may be the biggest, but in some ways is the hardest for us, given the uncertainty of our sort of situation, is demonstrate we're not going anywhere. Demonstrate that we're going to be reliable, that we're going to be present in Asia and in the Middle East and in Europe, that we're going to shoulder what we believe to be our sort of traditional responsibilities of global leadership, regional leadership, security, economic, and so forth, so that these countries don't doubt, well, if I pick the American side and there's a presidential election, oh God, what happens then? And then the Chinese come after me and I got nobody who's on my side. Um, and so if you put all that together, that I think is, would be a, a more effective approach than, uh, than the one that we largely have insisted is the case. So the, so to conclude, um, this will be my, my last question, but it's a great pivot to, to that question, which is this idea of not going anywhere. So there is obviously a, a debate, um, I think, particularly among Republicans, but it also exists among Democrats that because of the severity of the threat that China poses, we really need to pivot our resources away from our traditional allies and um, and partners, curb our commitments to other countries in order to adequately resource for a potential um, war uh, with China. So maybe I'll ask each of you um, in turn, and we'll, we'll start with, um, with Matt and then go to Rich and then uh, David. How do you respond to that argument? Um, does the U.S. need to curb its commitments, or are we better served in defeating and deterring China by actually um, being a credible ally to our partners? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the basic, I, Richard just made a number of great points. The, the concern of Southeast Asian countries, as well as Pacific Island countries and, and, and a lot of uh, a lot of other countries in in farther away uh, regions, the the fear is not that the, the United States is going to come colonize. You know, the fear is that the United States is going to leave. With China, these countries are 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 afraid that China is going to come on too strong. So it's a, so there's an asymmetry in terms of this choice. It's not it's not two suitors. It, it, it's it's really a. Tr <laughs> You know, a question of whether the United States is still going to be there to help defend uh, the concept of, of sovereignty uh, uh, and, uh, and and to you know prevent a, a Sinocentric uh, new co-prosperity sphere, which Xi Jinping has called Asia for Asians. I mean, it's very reminiscent of Imperial Japan uh, at the outset of World War II. It's, he's using similar concepts here, so they're they're worried about. Uh, a very different set of problems. Not worried about China fading away. They're about they're worried about China effectively colonizing them or, or subverting uh, their liberties and sovereignty. So, so already uh, we have the advantage. <laughs> and so, all we have to really do, you know, is is uh, show that we are reliable when we make promises. The promises we we make uh, tend to be ones. Um, certainly in recent years that that uh, are good for the United States national interest or our, our own uh, national interest. Uh, so they shouldn't be such difficult uh, uh, ones to make. 
I think we should be doing more uh, in the way of uh, uh, bilateral agreements. If, if we're not able to get to, you know, to TPP, uh, uh, e either we work towards a multilateral agreement that gives us the ability to enforce on a bilateral basis. I think that would be the tiebreaker, by the way, that would eventually get the American people behind TPP again. Uh, I mean, if we were able to enforce that agreement, uh, re reserve the right to enforce and remedy, uh, you know, problems, uh, you know, non-compliance with that agreement by punishing individual uh, countries rather than relying on some kind of a uh, WTO-like, uh, um, you know, structure, which which failed to, at the end of the day, to defend um, uh, you know, law-abiding countries against a mercantilist predatory uh, country, China, um, then, then I think that that you could even look at, at TPP again. But in the meantime, certainly doing more bilateral tr trade and investment agreements until doing with every single member of the TPP. And, and, but lastly, we can't let China, if, if Australia or any of the other TPP members are foolish enough to think that they can... In, bring China into negotiations to join the, the TPP and, and still hold out hope that the United States is going to join, then they're smoking something. We got we got to get real here. I've heard some rumors that that some of the TPP members are entertaining the idea of, of letting China negotiate entry. Uh, you, you could forget about the United States ever entering TPP if China's in there. The whole point is that China is a low-quality, non-law-abiding, predatory, you know, player we want we this is allegedly supposed to be a high quality trade agreement that china wouldn't even be able to qualify to get into so let, either let's prove that that's the case and then we might be able to bring the us back in uh or or we need to start from scratch so your question was should the united states pivot to china pivot to asia if it really has uh the characteristics we described and with the chinese uh, the rise of chinese power pos posing the challenge particularly military uh, terms, should we go with the argument that what are we doing in Europe and the Middle East right. if China's as important as we said and we wish to deter war? First, somebody should write a book about the pivot to Asia and I, uh, with, with, <laughs> with Bob Blackwell and I've subjected my colleagues <laughs> to drafts of this thing. Uh, but uh, so next year, the, the, the answer in full length uh, will come out on these things. But, but in short, yes, we should pivot, including re rebalancing uh, military resources to Asia. There should be a bigger pie, bigger defense budget, but you're still going to have finite resources. So who gets the largest share is going to matter. Um, but that's a pretty blunt way of thinking about it. The real question is, what is the it that you're talking about? What risk would it uh, enable or, 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 or prevent in one particular part of the world? And then what would that capability do if it was in a different place, right? So, uh, you know, I think that the administration probably was a right to increase by a couple of tens of thousands of troops as immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, American troops in Europe uh, as a reassurance uh, matter, but they don't need to stay there indefinitely. We don't need to go up in our troop presence in Europe. Uh, we have five air bases in the Middle East. Uh, I don't know if we need five air bases. We have troops in Kuwait still. Um, so you can see areas and then, and then the question is, what kind of systems are you using, right? So, uh, you know, do you have your carrier ready to, you know, somehow deter the Iranians in case they forgot that we have carriers? 
and they'll change their behavior when we put one into the Gulf, or do you use that, uh, you know, in in uh, in in the East? So I think, generally speaking, yes, we should pivot, uh, you know, our our military resources. But that is very different than saying China is all that matters, and that we should somehow uh, imagine that the Europeans and friendly folks in the Middle East are going to take on the responsibilities that we would abandon in those areas. Because we have seen now time and time again that that does not happen, and it creates situations that actually draw even more from what we could deploy in the, in the East than would otherwise be the case. So, you know, the United States under President Obama withdrew the remaining troops uh, from Iraq. It was a residual force. It was not terribly uh, taxing in terms of the resource intensity. It was not the case that uh, a friendly group of countries in the region got together and filled in the gap. No, ISIS took over. Uh, they took over Iraq and Syria. And then when they started sending refugees uh, in from the Syrian civil war uh, into Europe and attacking uh, European uh, Europe with 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 terrorist uh, attacks and so forth, the Europeans didn't get together and say, oh, well, we'll we'll handle this one. We'll take it on. And it took a five year, extremely research, resource intensive campaign to destroy the ISIS caliphate. Had we left a residual force in Iraq, at least arguably, we could have attained the same outcome at a far level, far lower level of resources. And so, you know, going to zero, imagining our allies are going to somehow step up and for the first time, you know, just sort of deal with all of these issues on our own, or imagining that our only interests lie in the competition with China or in the Indo-Pacific as opposed to globally, I think would be a big mistake. So this all requires a, a level of subtlety in making these decisions that tends to go well beyond the broad kind of do more mantra of, you know, we should just do more, you know, anything done outside of Asia is bad. Anything done inside Asia is good. David, last word. I would just, uh, I'd add just a, just a bit, which, you know, perhaps, you know, we, we, uh, I at least, you know, scored so far some of the discussion that we've had and not yet had in the Republican you know, presidential uh, primary debates. You know, it's early days and and, uh, and a lot can change and, and improve ahead, of course. I'd say that, you know, there are some corresponding points about the Biden administration and the way that it's choosing to set its policy and go about some of these strategic and resource trade-offs and complexities between, say, you know, Europe and Ukraine and Asia and Taiwan, you know, that are really important. You know, the fact is that, you know, the sort of cartoonishly oversimplified uh, notion of um, of trade-offs that we sometimes hear, you know, is is not compelling, and these are not absolutes. And yet, of course, we don't have infinite resources, and there are ways that we need to think about trade-offs and efficiencies, and how do we, for example, build on the very alarming recognition of weaknesses of our defense industrial base, for example, that Ukraine has exposed in ways that are sufficiently up to the task. We haven't yet seen that from the administration or from the Congress. How do we apply lessons about our uh, shortcomings, our scarcity, our depleted ammunition stocks for the buildup that we need to defend ourselves in general and in particular to contribute to Taiwan's defense given everything that we've been discussing? How do we reckon with the fact that the Biden administration, that the claims made in the spring of 2022 by the Biden administration and by our allies about the enormous strength and success of their economic sanctions against Russia have weakened so much in the last 18 months. Fact is, Biden administration and our European mostly allies did carry out impressive 
quick, substantial, in many ways, unprecedented sanctions against Moscow after the invasion. Now, we have to note, of course, the invasion itself was a failure of our attempt to deter it in the first place. That was a, uh, a score against our economic pressure campaign. But there was a moment in the spring of 2022 when there was a real sense that the economic pressure campaign, uh, although you wish you wouldn't have had to ever you know, marshal it after an invasion in the first place, was an impressive demonstration of American economic power and that of our allies working in concert. 18 months later, the claims are a lot weaker. The shadow that that economic statecraft pressure uh, ostensibly casts over Chinese thinking, whether China really thinks twice about whether to move on Taiwan, is a different picture today than it was 18 months ago. Is the Biden administration doing everything it needs to do in terms of its internal planning, not only about defense posture, important diplomatic openings in defense with our allies in the region, but also our economic, financial, and technology sanctions and coercion tools? Are we having the consultations with European allies, but especially with our Asian allies, about that so that we don't face the kind of scarcity and backtracking and shortcomings in Asia with respect to China and Taiwan that, you know, that Xi Jinping threatens? I think there are certain questions like that that really are acute. They're on the economic side and they're on the hard power side. And if Biden administration and the Congress and our allies working these things, obviously in many ways that would have to stay, you know, private and out of public view, but in other ways that could be demonstrated publicly um, and can be used thereby for deterrence against Beijing, it would be valuable in absolute terms and it would help quiet some of the uh, understandable concerns about the trade-offs and the inability to meet our obligations both in Europe and in Asia and in the Middle East that Americans are increasingly. Well, thank you so much, David, Rich, Matt. We really appreciate your taking the time to, to share your ideas with us um, and opening our inaugural episode of this series. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at VandenbergCoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.